You are listening to Curious Cat, the podcast that examines the shadowy space where science and the supernatural collide. And I'm your host, Jennifer Holtz. Join me every week as I examine what it means to be a soul in a meat suit. Welcome to Curious Cat. Christmas and happy holidays to you and yours. This will be my 53rd Christmas. My God, time flies. My first Christmas memory is of reaching into Grandma Riley's oversized cookie tin and taking out a perfect sugar cookie, crisp on the edges, tender inside. I savored every nibble. Those Spokane Christmases were my happiest. I was with my cousins and my brother, and the house was overstuffed with family. There was Nat King Cole, Bing Crosby, Andy Williams playing behind the chatter as adults caught up over a game of cards or stood elbow to elbow at the kitchen counter preparing food. My clothes absorbed the smells of turkey and homemade candy, along with cigarette smoke and hearth fire. Grandma Riley had a column of matching picture frames on a slim slice of wall that held Santa visits that spanned 30 years. The one at the tippy top that would mark the very last Santa visit had me smiling ignorant into the camera while my big brother blistered on the other side of Santa's lap. Mind you, he was the good kid, the one that did as he was told, and I was the feisty rebel. No, it wasn't Freaky Friday that day. Garth sniffed out the lie before we'd even been asked to take a seat. I was oblivious, excited to share my Christmas wish list and receive a candy cane at the end. Garth didn't say a word. I don't remember if he turned away the elf's candy cane or not, but when we were back at Grandma's house, he remained silent, his cheeks blistered pink with what, with anger? disappointment, frustration? Was it a mix? Later that evening, when my father's beloved cousin Codge entered the kitchen, besides Auntie Joyce, he was all of our favorites. Garth walked over, eyes intense, and he poured his soda onto Codge's lap. It was such a Jennifer thing to do. The room gave a collective gasp. I was ready to bear witness to this spanking that had to be coming next, but instead, and to my disappointment, to be honest, laughter erupted throughout the house. You see, the adults had known that Cousin Koch, in order to make some holiday cash, had taken a job as Santa. They thought we would be oblivious, and they were half right. Back then, we opened our gifts on Christmas Eve. The Riley family room held the scents of the season, vodka and candles like cinnamony and something else, not pine, but a burnt something, like right before a car gave out and died on the side of a road. The tree was the star, dazzling in the warm, giant C9 bulbs by the fireplace, Spokane, mind you, is 
inundated with pine trees and Douglas fir, but this year, Grandma wanted one of those newfangled artificial trees. Grandpa, one to pick his battles, found the best plastic tree his money could buy and put it together in the place where we'd always had a real tree. So imagine Elf on a Shelf in Christ's cradle, and you get the idea. The burning smell filled the space. It made us cough, and that's when we noticed the smoke, not from the hearth. It emanated from the tree's boughs. The heat of the lights were liquefying the fronds of the artificial tree. Someone pulled the plug on those C9s. We opened the doors and windows to let in ironically fur-tinged fresh air. We turned away from the tree for a time because in the branches was this unholy union of bulb and branch. Each C9 fused into the fake boughs. It was the equivalent of accidentally opening up the doors and catching your parents having sex. Someone turned up the Nat King Cole. Someone else refreshed the adult beverages, and we soldiered on opening gifts. I could have been a better little sister. I'm certain what I'd asked imposter cousin Codge Mall Santa for was underneath the tree, and even unwrapped, it held my attention for a minute or five, maybe less than the smoking tree. Then I was on to Garth's Hall, not just watching him play, mind you, but elbowing him to the side so I could have a turn. There's no statute of limitation for being a jerk, and I was, and I'm still sorry. My favorite Christmas gift was one given to me after my parents divorced. Dad gave me a giant beanbag toss game, which I absolutely adored. I didn't even know they existed in the world. It was just like the one at the county fair, but it was mine. I set it up and played and played for an hour or so. My mother, though, took one look at it and saw it as a full frontal attack on our living situation and her. You see, at the time, we lived in this modest apartment in the shadows of the Hanford nuclear reactor. But priorities, right? We didn't have much space in our apartment. That toy disappeared the summer Mom and Mike moved us into our new house across the river in Pasco. That and the precious moments prayer lamp that once lit up my nightstand guarding me from demons. Both were suspiciously lost in the move. Christmases hit different as a teenager. That's what I've found. I'll never forget the look on Gar's face when he received not one, but two electric shavers on the occasion of his 16th birthday. And that was days after Christmas. Wasn't an actual Christmas memory, but still the disappointment in his face, I will never forget. My mother was frugal. It's a trait that I admire in her. Her discipline and tenacity gave her the ability to purchase a house and travel around the world on her summer breaks. But some of her, and God help me if she listens to this, though it is the God's honest truth, some of her frugality is owed to a kind of amnesia. $5 is a big tip. That's something she would have said often. Well, Maybe in the late 70s, but now, whenever we go to a restaurant, I always offer to tip. She won't let me. I wait until she's left the table and I slip a 20 under the salt and pepper shakers. 
Another ism, $10 buys you a plenty good Christmas tree. Yeah, that is, you know, actually true maybe in the 70s again, but I'm not convinced. That's why during my teen years, our trees had this sickly Charlie Brown Christmas charm about them. If you so much as sneezed within 10 feet of the thing, the needles fell away like glitter. When Garth went off to college, mom didn't want to bother with a tree at all, but I liked it, so she'd haggle with the owner of the local tree stand, and after a while, maybe out of pity for me, he'd come up with something to sell us for $10. Grateful, I'd decorate it by myself and sleep in its glow at that first evening. So every other Christmas, we spent with Dad and my mama bear from California, Kate, in Fresno, with my baby brother and sister. Oh, did we make some memories. We drove from Washington to California and back in Grandpa Riley's diesel-burning Mercedes. The ride home began with a stop at a tax-free store where my grandparents bought boxes of cheap cigarettes and booze, which became my backseat companions for the drive north. I wish I'd thought to scribble a face on the side of the box in the middle seat. It'd make my leaning into it to sleep feel a lot more intimate. Think of it as an early version of Tom Hanks's Wilson from Castaway, right? I adored those Fresno visits. I'd linger with my soul sisters, Mama Kate, her sister Molly, and sometimes her dear friend Connie. After big meals, we'd linger in the kitchen over dishes. We'd sip wine and laugh over gossip and God knows what else. It was the pressure valve release we all needed to endure the holiday season in one piece. Dad handled the tension in his own way, finding some all-consuming project to avoid picking sides in the great silent civil war between his love for his wife and his loyalty to his parents. One year, it was to record all of his 45s from the 1950s onto reel to reel. I hadn't realized that long oak box, I mean huge like a coffin for a Harlem Globetrotter, which stretched beneath the picture windows, was actually containing audio equipment until Dad put it to work. When I heard a song I liked, I'd visit with him in the front room. And he'd share his memories of that song, that artist, that record, those times in his life. It was wonderful, to me at least. I loved being with my much younger siblings on those visits too. The looks on their faces as they opened Christmas gifts was so precious. I adored luring my baby brother Harrison into the office to watch the Seattle Seahawks play on the television. Goldfish Crackers did the trick and he'd sit beside me and cheer, his tiny feet dangling at the edge of the sofa cushion as he clutched the oversized Pepperidge Farm carton with both his arms. I loved riding along with Kate and the babies from store to store to find the ingredients for lefsa or Christmas Eve crab and sourdough bread. Those were fantastic times. My second year of college, I lived in a studio apartment with my best friend, Deb. I had a little truck, and after we returned to Seattle from Thanksgiving break, we wanted to decorate our place for Christmas. 
While down at the village shopping for our normal groceries, we exited the lot the back way to avoid traffic, which ran behind all of the businesses. There, propped up beside a dumpster, was the most perfect Christmas tree I'd ever seen, just waiting to be thrown away. It was the tree of our dreams, leaning against that dumpster. It was for us, for us. We pulled over and Deb took one end, I took the other, and we chucked it into the bed of my truck, then raced up the hill to the Malloy Apartments. Our speed, though, betrayed the truth our hearts knew and our brains wouldn't register until we had it tucked and locked behind the door of our apartment. It probably wasn't being thrown away. That tree might have been beside the dumpster to air out until the branches dropped. We'd been swept up, though, by the magic moment. It'd been too good to be true. We set the tree in the middle of our studio apartment, and it added this regal quality to the old place. That's when we saw the price tag. Was it $60? Was it $100? I don't remember. We couldn't return it, though. We knew we'd be arrested, and we didn't want to have a criminal record. Besides, it looked perfect in our place. After I had kids, I understood the look I'd seen in Grandma Riley's face, the tight skin around her pursed lips and panic behind her eyes that others never seemed to notice. It was one of pressure, the pressure to create the ideal Christmas. I loved making the perfect Christmas for my family and for my friends. Don't get me wrong, decorating every last rail and beam in the house, cooking for friends and family, wrapping color-coordinated gifts, making Christmas morning magical for the kids— There were also the cousin sleepouts under the Christmas tree, which I adored those memories. I hold them in a heart-shaped box beneath my ribs, but many of those memories have a dark undercurrent no one has known until, well, now. On one particular Christmas Eve, I don't know how many people had come over, 16, 20, more, It was our tradition to serve crab on Christmas Eve, and that year had been no different. But before everyone said their farewells, a few loving guests slipped into the kitchen to help with cleanup. Fast forward to late that evening, Doug and I were building the Santa gifts for the kids in the living room while they slept quietly upstairs. My parents had been staying in the back bedroom, and my mother emerged, saying the toilet back there wasn't working. Sewage was gushing all over the floor. Not just from their toilet, we soon discovered, but all the downstairs toilets at the same time. This smell was horrible, and images of sewage seeping into the toys the kids one still an avid thumb sucker we're about to open made me panic. Doug called Roto-Rooter while my mother and I peed in the back lawn, laughing the whole time, which was the thing I needed to get me through the rest of the night. The Roto-Rooter guy found crab shells had blocked the sewer line. Fixed, He fixed that, and then we mopped up and bleached the entire ground level of the house. Christmas morning, the kids woke up bright and early at 6 a.m., ready to see what Santa had brought. We'd only had an hour or maybe two of sleep, but we were glad they didn't seem to notice the air was thick with disinfectant. 
The last year Santa was a thing in our house, provided the sweetest Christmas moment ever. Bryn had heard rumblings from her school pals that Santa was actually parents. He wasn't real. Christmas Eve, she went to bed, taking one last glance at the lighted tree before heading up the stairs to her room. As Doug and I set out the Santa gifts and the stockings, I noticed a little note tucked into the branches of the tree. It was from Bryn, and in it she told Santa that kids were saying he wasn't real. So in order to prove them wrong, she asked him to bring her a last-minute gift, one that the parents couldn't possibly do. It was a game called Squared Up. Well, you know I had to make that wish happen, but all the shops were closed. It was just minutes shy of midnight. I logged onto Amazon and found the game and then, thank goodness, saw it was available through their Amazon Fresh app. I ordered the game for overnight shipment. Somewhere around five in the morning, from bed, I heard the squeaky brakes of a truck outside. I tiptoed downstairs and there was the game, courtesy of Jeff Bezos. I slipped it unwrapped under the tree and went back to bed. That morning, without a word, Bryn came down the stairs, searched under the tree and found the game. She didn't smile. She didn't tell us the story. She just soaked in the knowledge that her friends didn't know shit. To cap off this special Christmas memory episode, I have a very special guest telling a story. Uh, This is my mama bear, grandma Kate, my kids, and take it away. Thank you, Jen. A Charlie Brown Christmas first aired 57 years ago when I was 11. It was a special evening for my younger sister and me. We had been invited to watch at the Bicklands' house. They had color television. The Bicklands were our next-door neighbors on South Mount Vernon in Spokane, Washington. Geography caused the street to slope upwards, which perched their Swiss chalet on a hill above our house. Our properties were separated by a stone fence. Trees and shrubbery planted behind the wall shielded their house from view. A long red brick driveway curved into their property and stopped at a small garage nestled beneath the house. When we were barely more than toddlers, my sister and I wandered onto their property on a warm summer day and made Mrs. Bicklin our friend. We stood outside her pained kitchen window, open to the fresh air, and hollered our hellos. She said her name was Ella May. I asked how old she was, and she said, 45. Outside of my grandmother, she was the oldest woman I'd ever met. Her voice carried the soft lilt of contentment, but her eyes held a tinge of sadness at the edges. She had gray chestnut hair, and wore a flowered shirtwaist dress. She escorted us home that day, but on those rare occasions when our mother lost sight of us, while we were playing in the yard, we'd wander to the Bicklin kitchen window and call, Ella Maid! Ella Maid! This was before we were fully indoctrinated to address adults by Mr. or Mrs., never by first names. It was the late 1950s, and the two Bicklin daughters were in high school. Mr. Bicklin worked as the accountant treasurer 
at the spokesman review. Mrs. Bicklin was a housewife. My family consisted of a father who was a teacher, a stay-at-home mom, and three children. Within a few years, we ballooned to five kids crammed into a small three-bedroom, one-bath house. By comparison, the Bicklins were aristocrats. Years later, when I was eight, I was in our front yard playing with neighborhood friends when Mrs. Bicklin drove her Nash Metropolitan past. I paused to wave, and when she waved back, I again noticed her sad eyes. The next day, I told my sister that Mrs. Bicklin was lonely and we should go visit her. I was too shy to go alone. She didn't let us in, but invited us to return the following day after school. Thus began a series of weekly visits where we sat in her kitchen, practiced good manners, and told only those stories that shed us in a good light. Mrs. Bicklin served ice cokes in leaded crystal glasses and store-bought cookies on china plates. She treated us with respect, listened to our stories, and offered gentle advice. No one had ever paid such attention to me. Our hearts intertwined to create a bond that lasted more than 40 years. The night of a Charlie Brown Christmas, my sister and I dressed in our good clothes, skirts and blouses, tights and Mary Janes. We donned winter coats. It had snowed the day before, but a slight rise in temperature had turned it to slush. We navigated puddles, careful not to get our shoes wet on our way to the Bicklins. The specialness of that program's premiere allowed us to go to the front door. We usually entered through the back. We climbed the steps to the wide veranda and rang the bell. Mrs. Bicklin opened the door wearing a dark green shirtwaist dress and black heels. Mr. Bicklin stood from his smoking chair to greet us another treat for the evening. We rarely spent time with him, always leaving our visits with Mrs. Bicklin before he arrived home from work. My sister and I sat on the antique empire sofa, upholstered in gray silk, nestled into a shallow alcove. A Christmas tree covered in colored lights and tinsel stood in a corner. The massive fireplace held a crackling fire. We crossed our feet at the ankles and straightened our spines. An assortment of cookies on a Christmas plate and paper napkins printed with poinsettias sat on the coffee table. Mr. Bicklin, in his highly spirited way, offered to make us Manhattans, his favorite drink. He left the room and returned with two elegantly stemmed glasses filled with Coke, Coke, that's Coca-Cola, and a a sunken maraschino cherry. He proposed a toast to the Christmas season. I felt like a sophisticate. The television inside a dark wood console was on, all warmed up so we wouldn't miss a moment of the program. The opening chords of the soundtrack gave me the shivers. For the first time, one of my favorite comic strips had come to life. I marveled how the voices perfectly fit the characters. Charlie Brown's forlorn tone, Lucy's crabby edginess, and Linus's thick-tongued toddler sweetness. My sister and I left that night high on Manhattan Cokes and sugar cookies, infused with the Yuletide spirit of Charlie Brown in the game. Every year since then, 
Come Christmas time, I'm carried back to the Bickland sofa where I'm surrounded by warmth and elegance and reminded how the loving attention of adults stays with a child forever. These days, Christmas looks different. Our adult kids live in different states, and as they should, they celebrate with their little families, cats and all. I don't decorate roof to floorboards. I only do the places of the house that delight me. Peppermint laying in the kitchen, woodland Christmas in the dining room, and that's about it. I savor those FaceTimes with the people that aren't physically with us, and I sit beneath the nostalgic glow of the C9 bulbs on the flock tree we place near the front room windows. I only do handmade stuff if the process brings me joy. I'm also learning to make room for missing my dad, Gary, and mother-in-law, Betty, and remembering the old times when many of my favorite people. I mean, it was never all of us at once because of the divorce, but many were under the same roof. Every year is a gift. This one and all the rest are no different in that sense. I hope you take a moment to make a mental picture of the sweetest, the best, the funniest, the most love-filled moments of your season. I'm wishing you and yours the best holiday season possible. I love you. Thank you for listening to Curious Cat. Join us next week as we share a fun recap of 2022. We have some incredible things in the works for 2023, and I cannot wait, though I have to, but I cannot wait to share that news with you. Until then, thank you for spending time with me here. I love you.